Good morning. How are you all this morning? My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors over at James Allen Christian Church. I have with me today my wife, Anna, and Addison. And my 11th month old little girl, Bella, is over in your child care. And then my wife is due with another baby in December. So we'll have three girls. And uh, so I'm outnumbered. Please know that uh, Craig is with us today. Uh, he just sent me a text a little while ago. He says, praying for us. And I said, well, I'm sitting with one of your daughters. And he texts back and said, well, which one I have four. And then he said, hold on a minute. Don't be texting in church. And so do know that... <laughs> Do know that they are with us in spirit. It's a great honor for me to be with you guys this morning to open God's word. As a pastor here in Charleston, I uh, have a keen interest in the health of the local church. Uh, pastors here in the, in the city of Charleston who are trying to faithfully proclaim and teach a true gospel are keenly interested in how other churches across the city are doing. Are they holding up a true gospel? Uh, are they holding up the word of God as being inspired, being the final authority for how we live our lives? And I'm just so richly encouraged for this church here on the peninsula. I'm encouraged for your pastor, Craig, how he faithfully opens the word of God Sunday after Sunday and preaches a true gospel. And I'm thankful for the good witness that you have in the city as I run into people that you work with every day. There's a continual witness of Redeemer Presbyterian being a church that continually faithfully proclaims the gospel. I really see that most of the time as a college, um, well, actually, it's a dental school, as a chaplain to the dental school. This is one of the churches, as I meet with dental students on a regular basis and travel with them, this is one of the churches I refer them to regularly here on the peninsula. And so I hear good news of your testimony of being salt and light in the city of Charleston. And for me as a local pastor in friendship here with Redeemer and with other pastors across the city, it's just a great honor to be with you this morning. My heart this morning as we unpack John 17 is that you would be richly encouraged as we look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples at that point, and even for us today, that you would leave today being richly encouraged. That's my hope for you. So if you will stand with me, we're going to read actually the whole chapter of John 17. So if you'll stand with me now, we'll read together. Starting in verse 1, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6. I have manifested your name in the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And I have come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may be have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, and he's talking about us here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that your son Jesus, as he gets ready to go to Calvary, stops, he pauses, and he prays in a perfect way for his disciples. He prays in a perfect way even for us today. Father God, I pray that we would be this church that Jesus is praying for. Father God, we thank you that what Jesus asks for, he always gets. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are a culture that is used to getting what we ask for. Amen. So when we go down to the Starbucks and we order the grand the grande misto with a little bit of caramel on top and some cream, all of a sudden at the end of the line there it comes. That drink just like we ordered it. If we go down to the Waffle House and we order our hash browns, I like mine plain, but some of you might like them smothered, covered, baked, slapped. I don't know what it may be, but if you order your hash browns a certain way, they're going to come that way most every time. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes it doesn't always come that way. Sometimes when we order a meal at dinner, it doesn't come quite the way we want it. But see, with Jesus, when he is praying to the Father and Jesus asks for something, He always gets what he asks for. Our trouble is, is that when we pray and ask God for things, sometimes we don't ask in the right manner. James 4, 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We see that Jesus here in John 17, as he's in between washing the disciples' feet in the Passover and he's getting ready to go off to Calvary, that he has come before the Father being fully God incarnate here on earth, he is coming before the Father and he is asking for something on our behalf. He's asking for good things on our behalf. And we know that if Jesus was ordering his hash browns at Waffle House or he was ordering his grande misto at Starbucks because he's asking in the right way, every single time he would get what he asked for. And I don't know about for you, but that is extremely encouraging for me to see God incarnate praying in this passage for me and you and for the church and to know that whatever he has asked for here in his scriptures, we have been guaranteed to receive. And that is good news. So this morning, what is Jesus asking for on our behalf? And so if you're taking notes with me, I'm going to run through some of these passages here as we see Jesus. What is he asking for on our behalf here in John 17? So we'll pick up firstly 
And we'll look and see in John 17, 2. Let's read this together. John 17, 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus has been given the authority to give us eternal life. I think about pro-life, this idea of children having the right to life. The Catholic Church has done an excellent job of this whole idea of pro-life. The Protestants were catching up. But see, what's so important about this right to life is, is that if we don't have the right to live, we don't have the right to be married. We don't have the right to drive a car. We don't have a right to own property. We don't have a right to bear arms or even to hear the gospel. Jesus has given us the right to life. Jesus has authority to give eternal life. For you and I as believers in Christ, if there is no eternal life, if there is no promised life with Christ forever, then what good is it? What good is this life? It is short and fleeting, but Jesus has been given the authority to give us eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10, for those who confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts, he has given that right to eternal life. And so we're thankful for that, that he gives that beautiful thing to us. What else has Jesus given us? Let's look at John 17, 8 together. John 17, 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has not only given us the right to eternal life for those who have made confession in him, but he's gave us his word. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, we see that it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for training in righteousness, rebuke, and exhortation. We know that Titus 1-2 says that the Word of God is true. It's impossible for God to lie. Jesus has given us His Word. We even see that going back into the Old Testament, that Adam and Eve, before the fall in the garden, they had been given His Word. God had said, Be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion over all things, and do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At that point in history... Man had the word of God. They had all they needed to be faithful to what God had called them to do. And what a beautiful gift that God would give us his word. These 66 books of the Bible that he would give us his word that we might understand how who he is and how we might relate with him. And that is a wonderful gift. Amen. What else has Jesus given us? Let's turn over to John 17, 11 and 12. John 17, 11 and 12. I love this one. This one's special to me. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. You can underline name there, unless it's a pew Bible. Do that there. Which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He has given us... His name. What does it mean that God has given us His name through the power and the authority of His Son, Jesus? What's well, like this? When we're born into the world to our parents, we receive the last name of our parents. So I'm a Bennett. My father's name was Bennett and my grandfather's name was Bennett and, and so on. And so I was born into the world. I, I became a Bennett. Uh, Anna and I have been married almost 12 years. In five years into our marriage, we had an opportunity to adopt Addison. She's our oldest daughter. She's six years old. She's with us today. And Addison had a different last name than us when we adopted her. But when she was adopted into our family, she received the last name Bennett. And so until the day she walks the aisle to marry another man and to receive his name, she will have the last name Bennett. Well, see, that same thing happens for us. Is that when we are outside of Christ, we do not share it in his name. But when we come into Christ, we become Christians. 
we become little Christ. And therefore, we've been adopted in the same way that Addison was adopted into our family, and we have a new last name. Now, what's interesting here, particularly in John 17, 11 through 12, is, is that Jesus is showing a tremendous care for him, his disciples, and us. And you mean what by that? Is that he has faithfully been loving his disciples now for three years, and he's about to go off to Calvary, and he knows that the disciples are going to flee from him, and he's going to be busy doing the work of the Father. And he's saying back to the Father, Father, I have guarded them in your name. And during this interim time, as I go off to do your work, Father, would you continue in that work to guard them? It'd be like us getting a babysitter. It's like that we're going off to do something else and we look back to our parents and we say, Mom and Dad, can you keep the kids for the weekend? Jesus is doing a divine handoff here to the Father. He's saying, take care of them. Sustain them in this very difficult time in my name. How blessed it is that us as believers might share the name of Christ, that we might have the honor of being little Christ in a world that is darkly dying and separated from Him. So what else has... The Father given us through the Son's prayers. Let's look at John seventeen thirteen. John seventeen thirteen. I'll read there. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to the world that they may have they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Christ has given us his name, he has given us his word, but he has also given us his joy. How is it that we have received the joy of Christ? Christ is just about to go to the cross. He's about to be denied by Peter, one of his most beloved disciples. He's being denied by the world. He's being denied by even his faith, the people who are around him, his closest friends, his brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters. And yet in the midst of all of that, Christ has joy. In our lives, we are going to have sufferings and sorrows. But we can take joy in those sufferings and sorrows that knowing that one day, we will be made one with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit again, that we will go on to be with Him forever. Paul had a a sense of this joy that I so often miss. In Philippians 1.21, we see that Paul says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. He writes those letters from prison. And yet you see that in him there's this joy. He's like, to be here is good for me. And to die and to go on to be with Christ is even better. In Isaiah 35.10, this is the joy that Christ has, and this is the joy that we look forward to. And I'll read this, Isaiah 35.10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall attain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. How is it then that we have this great joy in spite of sorrow and suffering? We have this great joy because Christ has given us This joy. He has given us His Spirit, and so within our hearts we know that this is not it for us. That no matter what happens in this life, that one day we'll be perfectly healed, and that we will be in the midst of His glory, the light of the sun literally lighting up all of heaven, and that we'll be before His throne of grace singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is reason, church, this morning for great joy. And the great thing is, is because Jesus asked that we would have His joy, we know that we'll get what he asked for. Praise God for that. Amen. Let's continue. So what else has Christ given us? He's given us his protection. Let's look at John seventeen fifteen as we unpack this further. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I'll read that one more time. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is asking the Father that the Lord would protect us from the evil one. 
We take great hope in this. If you're familiar with Matthew 28, it's right there in your vision statement as a church. Was we see that and he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. We see that he says, all authority has been given and I will never leave you nor what? Forsake you. Jesus has asked the Father for his protection over us. And so as, as believers in Christ, we can look back to Acts 2 and 3 and we can go into a world that is dark and the thing that they would come back and gather together and pray for is boldness. So we can boldly go into a dark world knowing that we have been given his protection. Let's continue on. What else has he given us? His protection, his joy. He's given us his sanctification. Let's look at John seventeen, seventeen. It says there, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify here is an action. It's not something that's happened one time. It's something that's going on. So when we place hope in Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, when we confess in our mouths and believe in our hearts that at that moment we're justified, but as we continue to walk with Christ, we're continually being sanctified. And the neat thing about this passage here is, is that it's not just our work. If you want to turn with me over to Philippians 2, 12 through 13, I'll read there how God is actively at work in sanctifying us, his sanctification. John, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This idea of sanctification. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God is working on our behalf even in the moments when we don't want to work. Jesus is asking that the Father would continue to do that work in us so we know that we'll get what he asked for. But there's yet there's this sense, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. How do we work alongside of God as he is sanctifying us even in the moments when we don't want to be sanctified? It's by his word. It's by reading and understanding his word that we're continually made into the image of Christ. I'm so thankful that his word and his sanctification has been given to us because if not, we could not be more and more like Christ, being a true example of salt and light in a dying world. Hebrews thirteen twelve speaks of Jesus' sanctifying work even yet again. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. I am so thankful that Christ is continually, by the power of his word, sanctifying us. And even on those days when we don't want to be sanctified, we know that the Father is at work in us because of his request on our behalf. Let's pick up what else has he given us. He's given us his unity. Let's look at John 17, 20 through 21. John 17, 20 through 21. And I'll read there. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. What is this idea of unity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a constant affection for one another. There was perfect fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from the beginning of time. If we look back to Genesis, as we're seeing Adam and Eve made in the image of God, it says, let us... Let us make man in our image. We see, even before the beginning of time, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together had been living together in perfect unity and fellowship. And Jesus is asking that us, the church, 
that we would have that same sort of unity with one another and with Him. A perfect, constant affection for one another. Now, that's not the case for us as churchgoers or believers in Christ. Do we always have a constant affection for one another? Maybe you and your wife are in the car on the way here this morning and you weren't having a constant affection for one another. But what's interesting here is, is that Jesus is asking on our behalf that we would have a constant affection, that we would not have any carnal desires pulling us in effect from affection from Him and from one another. Let me define disunity. This may help. Disunity is when we come together here in this church or in Charleston together as the church, when we come together and we have an affection for ourselves. That's what disunity is. Is when I come into a relationship or into an environment and I have an affection for myself instead of the other person, that's disunity. And what's interesting about the great commandment is, is love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this constant affection for Him and love your neighbor as yourself. If we live out those commandments, will we not be in constant unity with the Father and with one another? So disunity is coming into an environment and having a constant affection for oneself. But unity that Jesus is asking for you and I here is, is that when we come into an environment, we have a constant affection for Jesus and for one another. Now, I don't know about you, but you may have been outside the church recently and you continue to hear your friends or coworkers say around the water cooler is, I don't want to go to church. It's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And that statement is true. Is that we know what the word of God has called us to be, but yet when we live in the world, we don't live his word. But what's interesting here, and I want to remind you this, encourage you, the difference between those outside the church and those inside the church is that we're in the church and we know that we're sinners and we know that we're hypocrites. Those outside the church, they have no standard by which to measure their lives. But I want to challenge us as a church that one of the ways that God is seen among us is when we have a constant affection for him and a constant affection for one another. See, in the city in 1850 on Anson Street, which is just a like less than a mile from here, blacks and whites were gathered together in prayer for months. And they just prayed, Lord, have, have your spirit come across the city. Revive our city. And after months of prayer, there was a great awakening here in our city. And revival broke out and churches were started and churches were planted. And it was because blacks and whites were together having a constant affection for the Father and a constant affection for one another. In this unholy city that used to have the name of Holy City, in this unholy city, it is so very important that we understand that Jesus has asked the Father that we be unified and that we have a constant affection for Him and for one another. Can we do that together as a church? Amen. Let's continue on. So what else do we see that Jesus has given us? He has given us His glory. Now you may scratch your head there. Any good theologian would. What do you mean He's given us His glory? He doesn't share His glory with anyone. Let's look at John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Wait a minute. It says here, the glory that you have given me, I have given to who? Them. That they may be one as we are one. Your church here has a a favorite verse. I even listened to the podcast last week. We read it again in the service this morning. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're being transformed from what? One degree of glory to another. We look back to Moses when he would go and he would bask in the glory of God. He would come away and his face would be radiantly glowing. But yet Moses, after a few days, would veil his face because 
as he was out of the presence of God, that glory would continue to slide away. It would continue to fade away. But that's not so for us. That's not so for us as Christians who have been redeemed and rescued by Christ. As once we receive his glory, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're getting brighter and brighter. Now, there's not this sense that he's given us his glory, but there's this sense that we're reflecting his glory. I'll give you an example. If I were to have a mirror here beside me and I were to paint it black and you had a spotlight in the back and it was shining on the mirror and it would have no reflection, none at all. That's our lives before Christ. But when that mirror is black, when we have Christ, what happens in that sanctification process is a little bit more black paint's taken off and a little bit more black paint's taken off. And ultimately that mirror continues to reflect more and more of his glory. Now what's interesting is, is that that glory was given to us perfectly with no black on the mirror in creation. See, God created everything and then he saved us for last. He saved us for his crowning achievement that we would be made in his image. And yet we chose to worship the created things, Romans 1, instead of the creator. And we go off to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God's intent for us was that we would fully reflect his glory. That we would bask in his glory. But yet now, as we wait to go and be with Christ forever, there is still this taint of sin on the mirror. But yet one day we know that because we share in his name, that when we stand before him in heaven, we will share with him in his glory. And yet his glory will so overwhelm us that we will continually give constant affection to the worship and adoration of him. It's an amazing thing that God would love us in such a way to share his glory or even give us the opportunity to reflect his glory in a lost and dying world. Lastly, what has he given us? John seventeen twenty four. if you'll look with me there. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God has given us a celestial home. He has prepared a place for us to go and be. And you have to remember that old song, maybe some of you will, some of you might be too young for that, but that song, Big, Big House with lots and lots of rooms, that big, big yard where we can play football. Yeah. So God has given us a celestial home. Jesus is asking, he's saying, will you prepare a place? I want to bring them with me. I don't know about you, but I would just completely, I think, walk away from the faith. If I didn't know that this life, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul talks about in Philippians 1.21. I think I would walk away from the faith if I didn't know that at the end of this life I had a place to go. That I had a place to be. And Jesus has asked the Father that we would have a place to go for those who have placed faith in Christ. And that is an incredible good news today as we live in a lost and dying world that we have a place that's waiting for us. So God has given us a lot of gifts, has he not, church? He's given us a lot of good things. But the question is, is why has he given these things to us? Why has he given them to us? Well, I've made mention of the fact that there is a world that is lost and dying and they need the gospel. Let's look together at John 17, 18. Why has he given us these things? John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We've been given these things to be sent into the world. Why else has he given us these things? Let's look at John seventeen twenty one. That they also may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's given us these things to go into the world to proclaim to the world that Jesus was sent by the Father to the world. Why else has he sent us? Why else has he given us these things? John seventeen twenty three, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so the world may know what that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So why has Jesus given us these things? He has given us these things so that we might go into the world and proclaim that Jesus was sent by the Father to a world to proclaim to that world that God loves the world. Sometimes most of you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. But we go on to John 3.17, it says he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The reason that we have been given good things is that we might do the exact same thing that Jesus has done. So let's back up for a moment. God, the Father, and the Son together, perfectly in unity together. They loved us before the beginning of the world. They loved us even before sin happened in the garden. And they had already made a plan before the beginning of time and how they might redeem man. God has loved us in that way. And he's loved us so much that he sent his son on our behalf. Now what's interesting is the son had been given everything that the father had. If you read back through John 17, 1 through 7, you see what the son had been given. Those same things that he's been given have been given to us. So if we've been given such good things and we sit idly on our hands and we do not go into the world in the same way in which Christ has gone into the world then we are not in the way in which God has called us to be. He has given us good things that we would go into the world in the same manner in which His Son went into the world. That we would go into the world proclaiming that God loves us and He sent His Son on behalf. And so when we go into the world, we go, world, God loves you and He wants you to be redeemed back into relationship with Him. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty so often of not being faithful to think about the things that God has given me and I sit idly on my hands taking advantage of the things he's given me instead of going and giving those things to another person. I'll give you an example that may fall apart, but we'll see, is if you and I were locked up in prison and someone came through prison and handed you a set of keys to your door of your jail cell, you would immediately take those keys and you would open the door And you would run out of the building. No. Hopefully, you would stop and you would stop and go by each door and then unlock the door for every other prisoner in that place. But sometimes as believers, what we do is we receive the keys to heaven and we run out of the jail. And we don't stop and unlock the door for those people around us. Now, Russ, what do you mean practical application here? It's very important for us as believers. We're called to be salt and light in a lost and dying world. It is important that if you've been received these good gifts from the Father, is that you know your neighbors. I know Craig and his sweet wife and his daughters, they're a great example as they were planning this church. Some of you were their neighbors. Some of you lived in the same neighborhood as them. They understood that they had been given good things from the Father and that the city of Charleston was in desperate need to hear that message of life And they needed to unlock doors for people. And that's why they planted this church. That's why in every relationship that they have, they're continually proclaiming the gospel message. How how blessed you are as a church. 
that you have a pastor that does not just talk about the gospel. He lives out the gospel. I'm so honored to be in friendship with him. I'd also encourage you maybe with this illustration as we close. Is if I were to tell you that a plague was coming on Charleston and that some 600,000 people were going to die tomorrow. And I'd just tell you that there's a common antidote to this plague that you could make from normal household goods in your closet. And right now I was about to give you the ingredients to that antidote. I would imagine that as I was speaking, you would take out your pen, you'd take out your iPhone, and you would record with meticulous care the exact ingredients on how to save your neighbors. Would you not? I would say that Jesus, in this prayer for us, he has asked the Father that we would receive good things. He has given us that antidote for life. And yet I'm guilty, and I'm sure as you all are sometimes, that we just take these good gifts that he's given us for granted. And we don't run out into a lost and dying world, that antidote that is so life-giving and setting people free. So as I close, I ask this question. In this passage, we know that Jesus is praying for us. He is praying for us. And I'm encouraged. Let's look at John 16, 23 through 24. He's praying for us. And then he says, if we ask in the same way that we would receive in the same way. So John 16, 23 through 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. How amazing is it when Jesus prays, he gets what he's asked for. And then here in John 16, 23 through 24, is that when we pray for our neighbors to come into relationship with God, that we get what we ask for when we ask in a right manner. I'm encouraged this morning. There may be some of you this morning who this prayer is not for you. Jesus are not asking these things for you. And you say, what do you mean by that? Jesus in this passage is praying for his disciples and his future disciples. Some of you may have not placed hope in Christ. Some of you may have not confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart, Romans 10, 9, and 10, that you might be in right relationship with God. This morning, I would encourage you during our time of response that you would pray and ask Christ to be your Savior, that you would receive his good gifts and that you would follow him. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you so much for these good gifts that you have given us. Lord, you're too gracious to us. We do not deserve these gifts. Lord, I pray that we would receive these gifts that you've asked for us and that we would go into a lost and dying world and that we would boldly proclaim the gospel. Lord, thank you that we can take courage that you're going to protect us in the midst of that work. That, Lord, you're going to continue to sanctify us and make us right by your word. And, Lord, thank you that when we pray and ask for good things with right motives, Lord, that you work on our behalf. Father God, thank you that your your will for us is not hidden, that you love us and you desire that we would go and make disciples of all nations. Lord, I pray that we be a church that's faithful for that. God, I pray for Craig and his leadership here at the church. I pray that you would continue to bless this church, Redeemer Press, as they are salt and light here on the peninsula. Father God, I pray that your spirit would fill the people here and that they would be unified together, praying and preaching the gospel faithfully wherever they go. God, we thank you for a great opportunity this morning to open your word and to know that you have faithfully spoken to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, you're gracious to us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.